Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 76 of the Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with Jamie Whitney about setting flat fees at a new firm. Today's podcast is sponsored by Abacus Private Cloud. Future-proof your firm by going virtual. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Zero Beautiful Legal Accounting, Simplified. Find out more at Zero.com. That's X-E-R-O dot com. If you enjoy our show, please visit Lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. So there was an article on Motherboard uh, today or yesterday um, about the worst guide to digital security on the Internet today, which cited um, a separate article on London's Observer that was purporting to be a guide to protecting yourself for digital privacy and gave a bunch of weird advice. And so now the Observer is being asked to take it down because it's confusing people and upsetting them and giving them a mismatch of really good advice and really bad advice and really confusing advice. And this is the state of the world we're in. Yeah, I mean, the Observer article was full of stuff like install a personal SSL certificate on your own copy of Outlook and run every single program in its own virtual machine and keep a second PC that's secure. And it's it's all this stuff that like is really, really overkill and really clunky and unworkable. And even if you did try to implement most of it, you'd screw up. Yes. And it missed out on a whole bunch of basic common good advice about password managers and two-factor authentication and other things it could have covered. And the point of all of this is that there is good information out there, but there's also terrible information out there. And if you're not particularly tech savvy, you would have no way of knowing the difference between these things. And if journalists are out there purporting to give advice and are giving shitty advice, how are people supposed to know what they should be listening to? Yeah. And I, you know, I keep going back to when we put together our security guide, we really tried to just identify four easy, low hanging fruit things. And, you know, I think it's great that security wonks are talking about weird overkill security things. But until we've got everybody who listens to this podcast or reads Lawyerist doing the four basic things, um, I don't, this is this is crazy town and not even just people listen to our podcast, but people in general, um, most people aren't even using good passwords, much less using a VPN and talking about keeping things segregated on two separate PCs is just completely ridiculous. And installing SSL certificates is well beyond. So, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, you've done a good job of describing our tech security guide as taking everyone from a D to a B plus with just four easy steps. And I think that's right. There certainly are steps you could take to get from a B plus to an A plus, and those are not going to be quick and easy anymore. And if you're describing the more advanced stuff, you need to say that. You can't write that for a general audience. 
And the vast majority of people just need to take our four simple steps and it will solve almost all of their risks. And I I guess it sounds like we're being mysterious, so I guess I'd better mention these. And you can find some basic how-tos for most of these things on Lawyerist, actually. You don't have to buy the guide, but I'd like you to buy the guide because it'll walk you through how to do each one. But use good passwords, which seems obvious, but most people don't bother to do this. If a hacker gets access to one of your passwords through, say, a massive LinkedIn password security breach, now they have your email address and a password that you've used on LinkedIn. And it's no secret that they can guess at what the other 100 websites you might be using that same combination to log into is. So as soon as you see LinkedIn fall, there's often sort of a cascade of other sites that people end up getting compromised and I start getting spam email from those people. Um, Encrypt your hard drive. Um, This one is like the no-brainer, most simple possible thing. And people just still aren't doing it. And it, it blows my mind because I think it's absolutely irresponsible not to. Um, and it takes a couple of clicks. So encrypt your hard drive, use good passwords, um, use a VPN. Uh, you and I use Cloak. There's another one called Pure VPN. There are others. A VPN is like, I don't know the best way to describe it. It's like a, a condom for your internet connection or something. It, um, it's, this is it, two episodes of the podcast in a row where you've talked about condoms for things in tech. Well, safe browsing now. It's <laughs> <laughs> a weird euphemism. Well, I, I don't know. I, I was still thinking of the USB condom from last episode, I guess. And then the final one is use two-factor authentication for your key services like Google Apps or um, Office 365 if you use that for your files. So, those are pretty basic steps that just about anybody can take and really, I think, has to take to be able to consider themselves even a little bit competent with security. So with that rant out of the way, let's switch gears and we'll have my conversation with Jamie about setting flat fees at a new firm. Hi, my name is Jamie Richards-Whitney, and I am the owner and sole member of Richards-Whitney PC. I do business law, focusing on small businesses and online businesses. And, uh, well, first of all, the name of the firm is Richards Whitney, which is your middle and last name. Was that strategic? It was a little bit strategic. It was also a little bit sentimental. Um, One of the main reasons that I have been keen to start my own firm is as a way to honor my mom, who was um, an attorney for many, many years and is one of my greatest role models. And her name is Janet Richards. And so having her name over the door is something that's important to me. Oh, God. So, she's kind of like your uh, your imaginary co-counsel. My, my imaginary co-counsel. Absolutely. <laughs> I like yep, that. I actually, uh, I have a little um, post-it note that is just an inside joke between me, myself, and I. And it's WWJD, what would Janet do? Oh. That's my mom. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So, you were at a big firm. Uh, I think you said it was Fulbright and Jaworski, although it has a different name now, right? That's right. It's now Norton Rose Fulbright. Gotcha. And how big is that? Oh my goodness. I think we're kind of, or they are kind of ginormous now. Um, It was many, many offices and many, many attorneys by the time I left. In fact, there was a paralegal whose name was also something J Whitney in Berlin. And she and I used to get crisscross messages all the time. (laughs) So we're talking thousands of lawyers, not hundreds of lawyers. Oh yeah. Many, many lawyers. So, uh, so you went from about as big as it gets to as small as it gets. Um, tell me why and (laughs) how, and you know, how long did it take and what did you do to prepare? How did that whole thing happen? It was a transition that was several years in the making. And I think 
it happened the way it probably does for a lot of attorneys. It was about uh, half planning and dreaming and about half circumstances conspiring to just make this the path that made the most sense. Um, I'd wanted to start my own firm for a long time as I kind of came up the ranks and started doing more client development of my own. I really realized that the types of cases I enjoyed the most and the types of clients I enjoyed working with the most tended to be uh, people and issues where the person running the business had a lot of, uh, I guess, not just skin in the game, but a lot of identity in the game where this business was their passion project and the thing that they cared about. Mm -hmm. And honestly, you don't see many clients like that at a firm as big as Fulbright. Um, It's just not economically feasible. So working on a smaller platform makes it make more sense to serve those types of clients. And then logistically speaking, I've got three kids. I've got uh, a lot of, of personal reasons that make it just make more sense to work on my own time than to try to do the big firm life. Fulbright is a very family friendly big firm, but it's still a big firm. So I'm, so what do you, how did you like what did you do to plan your departure? Because I mean, but it comes up a lot. Like, you know, what do I have to do? I have to tell my clients like what is involved in, first of all, you know, setting a date and preparing, you know, what kinds of things did you do before you left? Um, And then how did you actually walk out the door? How did you prepare to walk out the door? I really would not recommend my path to other people trying to build this same model. I went back to the federal district court for about a year between leaving Fulbright and starting my own firm. Um, I think there's sort of stages of coming to the realization that, no, this is really what I want to do. And my first thought was, okay, well, big firm life isn't working, but maybe uh, going back to a a clerkship life will will be the way to get some career balance and and still be working on substantive cases that, that make me happy. So I spent about a year working in the federal district court here in Austin, which was nice because that's where I started my career. So it was a little bit of coming full circle. But uh, eventually, I realized that that desire to to run cases, to be down in it, doing it, um, was not something that I'd be able to do from behind the scenes. So when I took the leap to actually start my own firm, I'd been out of that client development mix for about a year. And I really was starting from zero. And I think if I'd taken that leap a little bit more definitively while I was still at Fulbright, that might have actually made things easier in a lot of ways. Hmm. So, uh, but so you didn't, so you took a year off while you took a year of doing a different job. Um, Were you saving up a bankroll to help you stay afloat when you went solo or were you doing anything else to prepare or did you just one day decide, okay, I'm going to do it. Here's my last day. Let's go. It was uh, very much that. (laughs) 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 So, um, my whole family is attorneys and one of the people that I admire the most in my life is my mom. Um, her name was Janet Richards, and she was a law professor at the University of Memphis for many, many years. And she passed away in January. And it was that event that really clarified for me that this is what I want to be doing. And the time to do it is sooner rather than later. Hmm. Uh, so you kind of had a you had one of those events in your life that makes you reexamine everything. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so you've been solo for, uh, as of the time of this recording, about three and a half months, maybe? 
<laughs> yes, we're in early days. Wow. Um, so how's it going? I mean, I, you know, I think um, some people hear from brand new lawyers and they're like, oh, you don't have anything to teach us. But I think there's a lot to learn from uh, from lawyers who have gone out on their own, especially those who have gone out from their own after practicing for a while. Um, and I think that that it's a good reminder for all of us who started our own practices, like what those early months are like. So what are those early months like for you? I've been surprisingly busy. I was truly prepared for the phone to just not ring at all for mm-hmm. three months or six months or however long it takes. Um, but I've been uh, doing freelance work on a platform called UpCouncil. So that's been a good way to kind of keep my hand in and give myself time to build a brand and build a client base and really go after the the types of businesses that I want to build my practice around. And now that's starting to pay off. I'm, I'm starting to get clients that I would describe as dream clients. So wow. that's very exciting. Okay. So let's, uh, so you just talked about UpCouncil, which I don't know much about. And now that you've mentioned it, I'm, I want to talk about it. So, uh, so give me, <laughs> give me the brief overview. Is this sort of like an Elance or Upwork for lawyers? I mean, it sounds like Upwork for lawyers. It is exactly Upwork for lawyers. In fact, I, Think. I don't want to tell you the wrong thing, but I think it may be the same folks involved on some mm. level. Um, but it's been a terrific platform for me. The tricky part about it is that people will post, I need a lawyer to do X. And so you have to send a proposal back with very, very little information about what the client actually wants or needs. And it's been an interesting exercise. Yeah, so how do you manage that um, once you finally talk to them and it's abundantly clear that they don't know what they need and they just told you the wrong thing? <laughs> the way I've been handling it is kind of using it as practice to market, uh, to figure out how I want to market myself. So if somebody posts a thing on UpCouncil that says, I'm starting a business and I want to get all my documents in order, you know, that can mean anything. Mm-hmm. But that's an opportunity for me to send back, well, uh, I'm a business attorney and these are the types of businesses I help. And this is the way that I approach, you know, a startup package. I'll help you put together a company agreement and, uh, maybe a client facing contract to talk about your services and your terms and conditions. And these are the things I think are important about that transaction. If they, schedule a call with me if they allow me to do that work for them it's a good way to hone that package and figure out how it works and if they don't schedule a call with me they don't use my services it's no skin off my nose it's thought that i would have to be putting into that issue anyway gotcha if you contact them and they uh they talk about something that's totally not what you were uh expecting how do you how do you change that topic and just say no here's what you actually need so here's what i'm going to do for you I think it's all about asking questions. The more questions you can ask of somebody, the the quicker you can home in on what they actually need and whether it's a service you can actually provide. And I've had a few conversations that ended in, I don't think that I'm the right attorney for you. Maybe these are some things you could do with your proposal to, to get the right in, attorney in the door for you. So do you not, you don't have to quote them a fee up front then? Uh, no, that's actually... One of the ways that UpCouncil works is that you would be able to say, I think I can do your job for you for X dollars. Um, I don't typically do that. I typically tell people, this is my hourly rate. Why don't you schedule a call for me and I will 
quota package to you at the end of that call. Gotcha. And so uh, that maybe that's why it was it, it was it seemed to me like there might be a conflict. But so then, um, do some of those people become your clients? It kind of sounded like they were. Yes, definitely. Okay, so it's not just a it's not the same as Upwork or Elance in the sense that um, they might just hire you for one discrete thing and then you never hear from them again. They may actually come back for more work. Most of mine have, which is really exciting because I think the expectation is that it's going to be a one-off. But most of the time, uh, you know, it's like if you give a mouse a cookie, you're going to need your first documents formed. And then a few weeks later, something else comes up that you might need help with. And Mm -hmm. once somebody's built a relationship with an attorney that they trust, then um, the thought of kind of starting from ground zero is probably not that appealing. So one of the things that I've noticed from your website is that um, you seem to have put a lot of thought into an alternative fee structure for your clients, which probably dovetails nicely with UpCounsel. Um, but tell me about uh, your approach to alternative fees, why you want to do them and how you decided how to do them and, and what you're doing at this point to test it out and figure out whether it's working for you. Sure. Um, UpCounsel is actually a great beta testing platform for flat fees because uh, that's that platform really lends itself to a flat fee structure and they take care of a lot of the administrative part of things. But I'm using flat fees with clients who come to me directly as well for two reasons. First off, I truly hate billing by the hour. It's just one of the perks of being in practice for myself is that I'm not going to have to build my time in, you know, six minute increments anymore. Um, the other thing that I think is really valuable though, is all of the sort of uncomfortable fee conversations that I had or saw when I was working for a big law firm had to do with situations where the client expected X and the fee was, you know, some multiple of X for mm-hmm. very good reasons, but you know, it happened on the back end and not on the front end. And I think that making a predictable budget is something that clients can and should expect. And this is, you know, I've only been in business for myself for a matter of weeks, but I've been offering these services for a matter of years. And at this point in my career, I, I know generally how long it's going to take to do the tasks that I'm offering to do for somebody. And if I misjudge that calculation, that really ought to be on me. It shouldn't be on them. So you're starting with an idea of how long it's actually going to take you. Yes, my flat fee at the moment, and I would love to get more sophisticated about this as time goes on. But starting out here, what I tend to tell my clients is that my hourly rate is X. Once we talk about your matter and once we get a good sense of of what's going to be involved at each stage of your matter, I'm going to quote you a fee based on my hourly rate times the, the time that I think it will take me to do a good job on your case. And if it takes more time than that, that is on me. I've been doing it for long enough that that I should be bearing that risk and not you. And um, do you then go ahead and try to find more effective and or more efficient ways to solve the client's problem effectively so that you can take advantage of that flat fee? I certainly don't believe in reinventing the wheel. So <laughs> if there are if there are forms that I can use and if there are is experience that I can bring to bear that makes things happen more effectively, um, then absolutely, yes, I'm going to do that. And I'm very upfront with my clients that that's what I'm doing. One of the things they're paying for is 
the fact that I have experience in the field and that I'm going to be able to find the most efficient, effective path to a resolution for them. So then do you take into account, here's how much time it would have taken if I had created this document or um, negotiated this agreement from scratch, or do you take into account, well, now that I already have this document and it's only going to take me 10 minutes, um, do you take that, do you use that 10 minutes or do you use the 10 hours that originally took you to create the document when you're estimating the flat fees? So I think everybody does put some of those upfront costs into the fee somewhere. Mm -hmm. The way that I like to think about it is that my hourly rate is reflecting what it took me to, to build that experience and to build that library. And then the, the multiple of that hourly rate ought to be, you know, what time it's actually taking me to do your matter. So uh, what you're really doing is uh, you're, you're starting with an idea of hours and you're getting away from hours and starting to talk about value. That is definitely where I'm headed right now. I think I've, you know, I've only been doing it for a very short time. And the easiest way to kind of dip a toe in that pool is to start with, here's the time it takes. And here's what I think that time is worth. And then as you get deeper into, you know, working with small businesses and figuring out exactly how these problems fit into their business cycle, um, then it may make sense to, to move even further away from that time, time is money concept mm -hmm. and more towards what value am I adding to you? What, what problem am I solving for you? So I want to take two minutes from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to try and break down how it's going and kind of what conclusions you're drawing about uh, your experiments with alternative fees at this point in your practice. Did you know that law firms are the seventh highest target for cyber criminals? Breaches in security could cost you your clients, your reputation, and ultimately your firm. Protect your firm from cyber attacks with Abacus Private Cloud, the compliance-ready, fully managed desktop as a service, engineered to safeguard your firm against cyber threats. Abacus Private Cloud is brought to you by Abacus Data Systems, a leading provider of business technology products and solutions, including Abacus Law, simplifying your practice management since 1983. Learn more at abacusprivatecloud.com slash lawyerist. Billable hours are the lifeblood of a successful law practice. Problem is, you still have to bill those hours. Even if your law firm has an accountant, tracking hours, clients, rates, preparing invoices, and collecting on those invoices is time you never get paid for. And writing notes to yourself in court or on the road is inefficient and error-prone. Run your legal practice better with cloud accounting software and see why over 600,000 small businesses love Xero. Get a free trial at Xero.com. That's X-E-R-O.com. Beautiful accounting software. And we're back. So you've been doing this for a little while now, and you've had some experience quoting these fees um, and then seeing how the matters play out. Um, how, First of all, how good are you at, at estimating how much time it's going to take you? Well, I've got to be upfront with you and tell you that so far, I've been pretty good because the projects have been pretty finite projects. I think where it gets trickier is when you start looking into longer term engagements. And I've had the chance to quote the first few of those, but I haven't had the chance to see how they play out over time and how accurate that quotation is going to be. I, what I try to do is quote things in, in phases. So if we're going to do a litigation matter together, we're going to talk about this is what I think you should invest in a pre-suit resolution. And when you decide it's time to file the complaint, this is what I think you should be prepared to invest in 
that complaint and answering any counterclaims and getting through the first round of discovery. Um, so it's really not very different from what you would do in making out, say, a litigation budget. If you're doing a lot of insurance defense work or work for any other client that's cost conscious, it's just that you're you know, putting your money where your mouth is about budget overruns. Yeah. And then I guess there's always the opportunity too to come back to the client and say, hey, this happened. We need to respond to it. This is a, a change from our original scope of work. And here are some options for dealing with it. And here's what those options will cost. Have you, uh, do you write that into your retainer agreements that there might be change orders? I do. Um, the way that I try to address it is by being as specific as possible about what types of changes I think might come down the road, but then also leaving some language in there that says, you know, and anything else that comes up, you and I will discuss and agree on a strategic plan and a fee for that plan at the time. Gotcha. And uh, but you haven't had to enact the, that provision yet. Not yet. We'll see how it uh, stands up when it actually comes time to do it. So do you feel like you've proved the concept and this is going to work and this is going to be your long-term approach? I feel pretty good about it so far. I think it's hard to um, to say for sure what's going to happen at this point because I'm, you know, a quarter of a year into it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's still pretty new. But I like it because I think that it builds trust with a client. It puts you kind of both on the same side. And I also like it because I know myself and I know that if I'm having to chase people down, for an hourly rate that they're going to be unhappy with on the back end. I'm just never going to bill anybody and <laughs> I won't make any money. So. You know, one of the things that I kind of liked about flat fees is I feel like lawyers aren't trained to be business people and there's this shyness about discussing fees and it winds up creating this sort of passive aggressive thing where I'm going to bill you a lot of money because I feel like I'm entitled to it and then I'm going to send the invoice and you're going to be angry about it, but you're just going to pay it because you think lawyers are expensive and that's how it works. And like, there's all this unhealthy stuff going on to the relationship um, yes. because people are afraid to talk about fees. And not all lawyers are, you know, lots of lawyers are very upfront. They, they provide estimates, they give quotes, they still bill by the hour, it all works out fine. But so many lawyers are afraid to talk about money and talking, doing flat fees essentially forces you to talk about money. And I'm not even sure it's so much about whether or not you charge flat fees or by the hour, it's having an upfront conversation with your client and setting, you know, kind of talking about the value of this thing. Um, because if you if you tell your client it's going to cost $10,000, it doesn't matter if you end up billing it by the hour or not. They want to know that so they can make an informed decision about whether or not they want to do that thing. That's exactly it. If you're going to have a conversation with someone who has sticker shock, you want them to have that sticker shock before you've put in however many hours of work and not afterwards. Yeah. It just makes sense. And But with flat fees, you have to have that conversation. There's no way around it. And I think it forces people to have that conversation, which is a healthy thing. Yes. The other thing I think it's useful for doing, and again, you could do this with hourly rates. It's just that flat fees force you to, to put some thought into it. Anytime you're talking to a client to bring on a new matter, you should be exploring what's going to be involved in that work and what the potential wrinkles in it are going to be. You know, the sooner you have those conversations, the more effective and efficient you can be at developing and resolving that case. And with a flat fee structure, you have every incentive in the world to get that information up front and to be thorough at the beginning of the project, which I think lays a really good groundwork for developing the project as it goes. So uh, you must have some idea at this point about 
uh, whether or not this is going to scale and, and what changes you might have to make to the way you're quoting fees and doing things and what what sorts of issues have cropped up and how are you solving them and or how do you anticipate changing the way you do things? So I think at the point that long-term engagements become you know, more the norm in my practice, um, that change order clause, I guess is the best way to call it, um, is, is really going to have to become part of the process and educating clients up front about what kinds of things could lead to a change order and what the, the time frame for that will be, you know, how much notice you can expect. And particularly with litigation matters, there, there are some times when, a judge orders you to respond to a certain type of discovery or somebody files a motion that demands a response. And, you know, the time frame for evaluating that and figuring out how much to invest in it and getting it done is going to be pretty quick. And I think having that conversation and figuring out how to have that conversation to set those expectations is going to be interesting. I don't think it's going to be a, a a reason to change what I'm doing, but I do think it'll be educational figuring out how to talk about that. Yeah, I bet. Um, so you also have a podcast in the works and it sounds like by the time this podcast is aired, yours might be on air too. Oh, I really hope so. It's um, one of those projects that I started because it seemed like a fun thing to do at the time and I'm kind of building it out as I go. It's um, it's a law and business podcast. So, I'm so this sure, is for clients or for referral sources or both? Sounds like. Uh, for both, I think. So far, it's been developing where about half of the interviews are um, business people who ask me uh, just the types of sort of cocktail party or networking event questions that probably every business lawyer gets about how do I form my LLC and what do I need to put in my company documents and things along that line. And then the other half of the interviews have been uh, follow-up interviews with other professionals whose advice I'm interested in. Um, so a CPA who can talk a little bit more about the, the tax implications of the entity structure that you pick, and a, an attorney who specializes in business divorces who can talk a little bit more about um, the implications for some of the things you might put in or leave out of your company agreement. I'm hoping it's going to be a nice mix of conversations about that sort of first level of questioning and thinking that business folks need to do about their legal needs. And then the little bit of a deeper dive into if you talk to a professional about this, this is what they might say. Well, for what it's worth, I have found that um, following my own interests on our podcast and on our site uh, has been a pretty reasonable way to go about it. Uh, so, so that, <laughs> that's really good to hear. That seems like good strategy to me. Um, so, what about equipment? People who are curious about podcasts and whether or not to do you—you you obviously haven't launched it yet, so you can't talk about whether or not it's effective. But, uh, but how are you doing it? Uh, what sorts of recording equipment are you using to make it happen? Oh, I am such a you know in in the basement with a set of headphones and uh, and my computer. Well, right I am now. currently in my basement with a set of headphones and a microphone uh, and my computer. So. <laughs> Great. Then I'm in good company. Um, no, I, I definitely can't make any equipment recommendations yet. But uh, so far, just having the conversations has been a really interesting, fun uh, business development thing. 
So I'm not. Are you are you a Mac it. user or a Windows user? I'm a Windows user, which um, makes me a little sad because I hear that GarageBand is a really easy way to put things together. But I feel like that's a, a little bit little bit less accessible if you're not a Mac user. So what software are you using? Um, I started recording my first few interviews with Zencaster. They're mm-hmm. sitting in a folder on my Dropbox right now because I have no idea how to edit them. But tomorrow <laughs> I'm going to start playing around with, I think it's called Audacity yep. to figure out what that looks like. Yeah. And, and you know, for what it's worth, the, the Legal Talk Network folks use Audacity with their podcasters too. So um, that is a good way to go. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, um, I will make sure and include a link to your podcast in our show notes, assuming you send it to me and it's up by then, because uh, that would be uh, cool to be you. able to send people over to it so they can see how it is. I think lots of people want to know is podcasting, you know, is it a way to market my practice or not? Um, I always tell people stop thinking about marketing your practice, start thinking about, you know, doing interesting stuff. But um, but I think they, they'll be interested to see what yours is all about and what it's like and Um, It's an example of somebody giving it a shot and seeing. Thank you so much. That's exactly what it is. Well, thank you for being with us today. And um, I guess I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but um, you're going to be at our meeting, our TBD law meeting in St. Louis in uh, August. And I'm super excited to have you there and to have talked to you ahead of time. And so um, that'll be awesome. I am really looking forward to that. I think it's going to be such a good time. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to see you there. And uh, until then, thanks for being on our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.